Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Uncensored CMO. Now, this is a rather different edition of the podcast. Um, I've been dying to do a live event for some time and uh, finally got round to doing it with my good friend, Tom Goodwin, who always makes me think and is one of the, I think, the most interesting people in the world of marketing at the moment. We got a cinema in Soho, the Curzon, and we got a lot of people together to talk about disruption and what are the myths in marketing that hold us back. And Tom, as always, has got a brilliant perspective on these things. And what I loved about doing a live event is just the energy that everyone brought to it. You could tell everyone really wanted to be there. And there were so many questions at the end of the session. In fact, we ran over time quite considerably, but it was a brilliant conversation we had. So I thought, you know what, this might make a great episode. So what we've done is we've taken some of the highlights from the conversation, put it together as this podcast. Tom doesn't hold back. So this is properly uncensored in parts. And I know you're going to love it. Tom doesn't ever fail to deliver. Here it is. Tell us how you ended up leaving the kind of more corporate world and ending up doing what you do now. Um, I'm a real pain in the ass, actually. My mum and dad are both teachers and my dad was always quite sort of subversive. And um, I know for some reason he sort of imbued in me the idea that questions are really important um, and that we all have rights for opinions and it's sort of a good thing to express those opinions. I think intentions matter, by the way. If, if you're trying to provoke because you're trying to get people to sort of notice you, then that's a really shitty thing to do. But if you're trying to provoke because you're trying to learn and understand, then I think that's okay. Um, so I, I, um, I started, uh, I failed to get into advertising. Um, I applied to a few graduate schemes and I, I failed to, to make any progress. I started working at GlaxoSmithKline in what they called a marketing training program, but it was actually just field sales. So I had to go around trying to persuade schools to sell Ribena. Um, which I was quite good at, actually. It, it made, I'm quite good at, at sort of doing slightly evil things. Um, and then I got really bored. So I wrote to some of the companies that didn't give me a job. And I said, you know, please give me a job. Um, and I interviewed with TBWA and I became an account manager and I was there for a year and I was absolutely terrible account manager. I was the, probably the worst account manager they'd ever had. Um, so I decided to leave advertising. I did a job sort of freelance for low worldwide where I was a sort of weird producer where they basically gave me all the things they didn't know how to do. Uh, this was just as, I'm answering this in a very long way. I'm sorry if this is boring. Um, uh, they gave me a job on Nokia just as they were inventing their best phones. Uh, as you saw on that slide there, there was something called the Nokia N series, which were their advanced phones. There were smartphones before we knew what a smartphone was. Um, and they would win all of these projects to like do like a music festival or to make small movies. And they basically get the client to send them a purchase order for like a million um, and then no one knew how to do it. So I would just do everything they didn't know how to do. So I was a sort of producer. Then I did new business. And then I became obsessed with how technology would change the world. Um, and then I got really frustrated because I thought everything that people said was nonsense. Um, so then I started writing about it. And then I kept on getting fired. So then after a while, I realized that I was getting fired because I wasn't very good at navigating the politics. I wasn't getting fired because I was wrong. I was getting fired because people were quite threatened by it. And I think I had a sort of rumbunctiousness. And I think maybe I'm a little bit autistic because I think it's more important to be correct than it is to be liked. Um, and I wasn't really that happy about making the compromises to my integrity to say things for the sake of it. Yeah, so then I basically sort of ended up um, leaving 
um, most advertising agencies. Actually, and then like publicists gave me a really nice job. They treated me very well. Uh, so for about two years, I was working at publicists, basically doing this sort of stuff for a living. And then I got fired in the pandemic uh, for tweeting my opinions, which is fine. And then now I sort of do my own thing. So I kind of, I do a lot of keynotes, normally a lot better than this actually, and normally a bit more helpful. Uh, and I'm also doing proper consulting now. I'm working with really big companies to properly help them actually digitally transform. There are entire industries that are staffed with absolutely brilliant people that have legacy processes and legacy structures, and they have that for good reasons. And they need people to come in and be a little bit more... <laughs> A little bit more delicate than I normally am, but they need people to sort of help them have the conversations they need to do in order to make the changes they need to make. And I absolutely love it. Amazing. I've just realized something. I think one of the reasons why I love having you on the show is you've been fired more times than I have, yeah, which is a first. Like, so. More times than anyone. <laughs> I mean, sometimes they weren't really firing. Sometimes they were like, this isn't going to last that long, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll have to write the guide to how not to do corporate culture. Anyway, um, that's another episode. You, you've spent a lot of time thinking about technology, looking at how it's transformed or not transformed our lives. Um, what do you think, as you look at it, what do you think are the things we should be thinking about? I mean, you've talked a lot about things that actually not really have changed. Do you, do you have a hunch of the things that will change? With regard for technology or generally? Yeah, what, what do you think in 10 years' time will we look back and go, that did actually change how we live? Oh, a bit like the 1930s. Bloody hell, that's a good question. I, more than anything else, I'm quite worried about how divisive technology is. I think um, the, the modern media landscape kind of terrifies me because I really do think that we have a lot of... Um, we either miss out on or we are desensitized to a lot of things that are really important. Um, I spend most of my life in America and therefore a lot of the things I care about are things in America. Um, like wealth inequality is a ridiculous problem that's only getting worse and that's exacerbated by the media environment. Um, deaths of despair because of opioid abuse are an unbelievably big thing that everyone in most of America thinks about all the time but is never mentioned in the media at all. Um, so I'm, I'm quite worried about some of the undercurrents of society. Um, I despise the way that we've been brought up to distrust each other, to dislike each other, to be more politically polarized. I hate the fact that if you act in a reasonable way where you try to listen to the other side, you're called, you know, you're caused like a sympathizer or something. So the, the media environment is what terrifies me the most. Um, I think generally speaking, technology combines to form a sort of like a like a canvas of opportunity and i generally think that that will solve most of the problems um as long as we sort of change some of the engineering to society like if you actually think about it the internet's nuts you know like if you have a tablet that could be ten dollars and you have free wi-fi you can learn anything that's ever been discussed you know you can take part in any conversation you know people can self-teach themselves you know i'm not a huge talker about ai but ai allows most people on the planet to start building some pretty good code like i feel like we have all of the tools and I feel really frustrated all of the time, which is why I quite often seem miserable, because we could be having amazing conversations. We could be learning so much. We could be talking to fascinating people. We could spend our lives just stimulated and like learning from everything and everywhere and so insightful. We could be so empathetic and thoughtful and somehow we're sort of using it all wrong. 
So I probably think that the most transformative technology out there, um, one, if someone can do something about voting and politics, like if someone can actually get the people who really should be voting to vote by making it easier, if someone can gener gener develop systems to actually listen to what people are thinking more honestly, if we can start emailing companies and getting good customer service, I think those are some of the sort of places where life starts to change quite a lot. But I think most of the things that we talk about most of the time are a bit of a distraction. It'd be like having an app that's like what real people actually think. Because it's like, because social media divides, doesn't it? It is driven by the extremes. And we seem to fill our lives listening to the the 0.5% on either end of a spectrum. And actually most people yeah, are in the middle. I think uh, when I say things like this, I think if I was listening to me, I'd really dislike that guy on the stage right now because it sounds so sort of smug and condescending. We, we've sort of lost a love for our consumers. Like I think most people in marketing generally are quite dismissive and extremely patronizing to their consumers. You know, they, they think their consumers are, are stupid. They think their consumers are kind of voting for really horrible people. They think their consumers are a little bit evil or just ignorant or something. Like people are amazing. Like um, I'm, I'm quite shy. I don't, I don't like talking that much, which is very weird. And but I love talking to Uber drivers. Like my, my favorite thing in the world is to sort of be in a long Uber drive um, in a part of the world that I don't normally go to and just sort of listen to them about their lives. During the sort of first half of the pandemic, I lived in rural Georgia, the, the American one. Um, and I'd go to sort of bars and I'd just overhear what people were talking about. And I'd go to sort of lo local country fairs. And again, I'm not saying this in a sort of I'm smug, I'm better than people or nicer than people way. But I think um, everyone's really interesting if you let them be. Every, everyone teaches you quite a lot. And I think generally speaking, as an industry, we, we keep on looking towards Silicon Valley or, you know, um, Tel Aviv. We keep on looking towards like young people who are trendy. We keep on going to like Williamsburg or Shoreditch and we're like, oh, wow, this is the future. Um, it's um, maybe a little bit, but probably not. Like the the real future sort of happens in like a shopping mall that's about to close down in Milton Keynes. You know, the real future happens in Poundland, um, in Scunthorpe. You know, the real future happens in a sort of sad Pyrenean village. And I'm not here to sort of preach, but I think it would be nice if we had a little bit more curiosity about how most people are living their lives. I like your distinction between busy and being overwhelmed, which just really struck a chord with me. <laughs> Maybe I'm a bit overwhelmed at the moment. I don't know. But <laughs> what um, what opportunities does that create? Because it strikes me that as, as advertisers, brand owners, agencies, we don't really spend much time thinking, how do we make the life of, life of our audience or consumer easier? Yeah. Which strikes me as an obvious thing. I mean, thing that's it. Like, just, just make it easy. Like, make it easy for people to be aware of your thing, you know, by doing some sort of mass market stuff. It's obviously quite expensive. Make it easy for people to understand your thing by not changing your logo all the time, by not changing your tagline all the time. Things like jingles probably would work better today than they've ever worked before. You know, make it easy to understand it. Um, make it easy to choose. You know, like there's this obsession with with line filling that means that, you know, every type of sort of dog food is on like a matrix. I don't know if you ever saw it. I think it was um, someone looking at dishwasher tablets. It was amazing. It was like a picture. And it was like, I'm going to forget the name of the brand, but it was like sort of, I don't know, let's call it wishy-washy. It was like wishy-washy ultra, like wishy-washy ultra premium, wishy-washy platinum, wishy-washy platinum with lemon, like wishy-washy like 3.0, wishy-washy cyber. And you were like, how on earth would anyone ever like walk away feeling happy about what they just bought because they probably just sort of missed out on wishy-washy 
premium superb 4000 I, I, get, I get that with razors right you get the gillette oh, yeah. mac 15 you know with extra gel and just think so i think i, I think i think sort of good better best like you can't go that far wrong with that um, and then the other thing, and this is one of the things that has really, really changed. People can now buy from anything anywhere on the planet. So make it really, really easy to take people's money from them. Like I genuinely believe you should almost be able to buy anything from any surface on any device with about two clicks. You know, these trousers, if I like them, I should just be able to reorder them by sort of hovering my phone over a QR code and a label and they should just arrive. Um, there's a weird thing going on where I think um, a, a not insignificant proportion of the population has more money than they know what to do with and less time. Um, and we tend to not talk to those people that much, even though we think we are. And then there's a lot of people without that much money who are also quite overwhelmed and probably don't have that much time, but money is the biggest factor in how they behave. So just coming back to your uh, humping and staying dry quotes, <laughs> you were talking there about things that don't change. You remind me, I think it's the Jeff Bezos quote, isn't it? Tell me mm. what won't change, yeah. and I'll build a, build a business around that. What do you think's not changing that we should be looking at and building a business around. So taking a contrarian point of view, everyone's rushing to do AI. What's the thing that isn't changing that if you focused on could be uh, an opportunity? I mean, the, the lazy way to answer this question, but it's true, is almost everything is not that different at all. Like, really. Um, so I, I don't think there are sort of big, obvious headlines to answer this one. Uh, something may come to me later. I do think um, the question is what's not changing that we're not paying attention to the most. No, I, th I think if we just presume that most people today are generally living lives similar to the 1960s and 70s and 80s, and quite often the things that are in our heads quite a lot are not really that much in the heads of other people. Um, like I'm not going to sort of start weird conversations about the sort of movements towards like transgenderism. I'm not going to start things about climate change. But you have to understand that for a lot of people, you know, they're trying to get by. Um, again, I'm not here to be the sort of the voice of the North or something. Um, but I think we are quite far removed from the realities that most people have. Most people are terrified to answer the mail. You know, most people, if they see a piece of mail that has, you know, must be open now, they're not going to think they've won the lottery. They're going to think that they're, you know that they've lost their benefits or something. And I, th I think we've become, we've got really sort of removed from that. Well, well one small one that struck me was um, Hyatt Denham. I don't know if you've come across what yeah, they Yeah, amazing, yeah. Built a business on a newsletter. And you just think, newsletter? I mean, they were out of fashion when I was starting. You know? But, yeah. you know, people, as long as you make good content, people are quite happy to read it and consume it. I mean, all these things are quite hard to talk about in a slightly, um, slightly rushed conversation because actually like the real value is in the nuance like um it's easy to say that everything in the 1960s still works but the reality is that people are not watching tv in the same way they used to um it's easy to say that if you sort of zig when others are zagging then you do the newsletter or you do the rss feed or you do the you know money off coupon or you do the jingle you know by being sort of counter to the trend you'll win everything depends on the very specifics i, I guess what i'm saying is we shouldn't go into these conversations with our eyes open to the idea that everything is interesting, everything is different, everything is um, profound. We should go into these conversations with a sort of deep breath, thinking if I was a marketing director that was 55 years old in 1970 and I looked at this problem today, if I had to give them a briefing note as like an intern to say, just so you know, 
three things have changed. Those three things would be surprisingly small. You know, I, I look at things like the Lunascape. I think it's called the Lunascape, which has got like a billion logos everywhere. And I'm like, there are a lot of marketing directors that are really worried because they think they're supposed to understand this stuff. You know, if you had a marketing director um, 20 years ago, you wouldn't put a chart up saying, here's all the different stocks of paper you can have. Here's all the different types of printing cartridges. This is CMYK printing. This is PAL TV format, CCAM format. This is a DigiBeta. This is a new type of editing suite software. It's not our job to be in the weeds. And I think um, because everyone kind of ignored the internet, because the entire advertising and marketing world um, put its head in the sand as the internet was created, and because for about 15 years we did nothing and we were really ignorant and we were okay with being ignorant, I think ever since then we've sort of become aware that we have to broadcast to each other in the industry that we get it. And we have to be talking about everything that's new as a way to prove to each other that we haven't fallen asleep at the wheel this time. And I think that leads to really destructive conversations. And if you go around saying things like things are not that different, people don't assume you're enlightened. They assume that you're ignorant. I was just thinking actually, as Chang, what would the system one day to tell us uh, has changed mm. that shouldn't change? would be probably characters and jingles. You mentioned jingles, actually. So yeah. there's been a steady decline in use of characters, but they're one of the most effective ways of you know making advertising work. And jingles are brilliant ways of getting people's memories, but they're a bit I unfashionable. Mean, I mean, you probably don't know System 1, but if you took some of the sort of classics from our youth and you presented them today... You know, maybe I'm wrong or maybe I'm being nostalgic, but I think the devices like the Nescafe sort of story, you know, the man who loves milk tray story, um, the sort of simple like tunes like I could do with a D, you know, the print adverts for cigarette brands that are obviously not allowed anymore. Like maybe we remember these things because the media environment was much more simple. Maybe the media spends were higher as a percent. But I think that actually the beauty of a fairly clear message that you reinforce which is not overly complicated which is giving people just a couple of sort of um you know synapses in their head uh, yeah I, I i find it very hard to believe that that wouldn't work these days if you did it in the right way uh two minute warning audience think about your questions uh so before we do that just uh, i i'm interested in your scott galloway uh he was at Cannes this year declaring again that brands are dead uh, even in article I, I was looking at last night he was talking about it again Slightly different question. What's motivating Scott Galloway to say that? Because he's a smart guy, obviously professor, well-known. What, what do you think is behind his motivation to declare that? I think people don't realise that this is a bit of a game in a way. I mean that quite nicely. But if you're in the sort of thought leadery world, you get very removed from the reality of actually doing people's jobs. You know, like if, if you're sort of flying around on a nice plane, and I'm sort of guilty about this a little bit, you know, I, I, I quite often have said things in a tweet and then it's brought up to me the next day in a meeting. And I'm like, one, I'm, sometimes I'm really wrong. Uh, sometimes I'm being unhelpful. And sometimes I'm just being really naive. You know, I remember saying things like there's no such thing as digital. You know, no company should have a digital department. You know, what is social media anyway? At least, you know, is YouTube social media, you know, is PayPal social media. And they're kind of like in the context of like a thought leadery kind of world, they kind of make sense and they're kind of fun and they start good conversations. But in the context of everyday jobs, you know, there's no point in going to P&G and be like, there's no such thing as digital because uh, they've got like a whole fucking department called digital um, and they're right to do that because that's how you bring new things in. So I think these things are best understood by realizing that um, he really likes sort of just fanning the flames 
um, what he said is what he generally tends to say are rooted in some sort of truth. What he tends to say is obviously a simplification. Um, I do think he is fundamentally wrong about a lot of things in advertising. Um, and that's because everyone who's not in advertising thinks they understand it. You know, so if you read enough S1 filings and if you understand, you know, how company accounts work and if you understand how boards work, you kind of think it can't be that hard to understanding. Like, you know, uh, you know, it's just about coloring in, like it's just about picking pretty people. And I think there is a real nuance to branding and advertising, which is very illogical. The sort of stuff that Rory Sutherland talks about all the time, you know, the concept of wastage being a good thing. Um, so I think he's deliberately being more stupid than he is because he knows it'll be helpful for him. Uh, he's quite a funny, he's quite a string. Amazing. This is Thank you. Isn't it? Cut that bit out, but he's a bit old. <laughs> uh, Producer James, have we got a microphone that works as a, to go around the audience? We do. Amazing. Right. So you, your opportunity, everybody. Um, hope you've got some good questions. Oh, there we go. We've got and one already. Straight away. Two. This is good. This is a good sign. We're avoiding that pregnant pause that often happens <laughs> at this moment where I get awkward. I get that all the time. Do you? This would be the... Hello, hello. hello. You got me? Yeah. Hi, Tom. Bob Wooten. So uh, nice to you. see you again hello. after so long. You it's never disappoint. Thank you for flying over. Fantastic. Um, uh, as general uh, kind of useful idiot and retired nuisance <laughs> of this industry, um, I have a hypothetical question for you. Um, I am the CMO of a hypothetical large consumer business. How do I tell my C-suite colleagues that the online advertising emperor has no clothes? Oh, our industry's become very tribal. Um, so I entered the world of advertising in about 2002, and we were very closed. We had loads of money. Um, we were quite um, glamorous. We'd have sort of long lunches. Um, we used a lot of sort of mysterious language. You know, we sort of lived in the world of the myth and of the film and sort of um, people who are very charismatic that sold ideas. And we were a little bit old fashioned. And then the sort of Internet came in and they were the kind of geeks and we didn't really like them. These are not my opinions, but this is how I'm expressing how people felt about it. And we kind of thought that they had like tiny, tiny media budgets and we didn't really like them and they wore different clothes. Quite often we thought they were like the IT department and they sort of smelled a little bit. And often we'd sort of put them on like the, the ground floor. And then as time, the internet became a bigger thing. So we had more meetings with them. Maybe we moved them up to the first floor, but we were still in the ninth. And then all of a sudden, you know, we had the sort of Facebooks of the world and the Googles and they had all of the money. And then you go to sort of Cannes in about 2007 and they started taking all the yachts and then they'd start taking your clients out for meals and they'd spend loads of money with them. And then they became a sort of threat. Um, and then before you know you are, they had all of the money in the world and they had all of the, 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 the relationships. And we started to think that we were stupid because we didn't understand anything they were talking about. You know, they, they were able to prove things with data. They were able to use really complicated terms that we didn't really understand. Um, and ever since then, there's been this sort of two tribes. And I think we've never really had the confidence to call them out on their nonsense. I will publicly say this. I despise every single thing about Facebook. I think every single thing about that company is pure evil. I think the people that work there are extremely ignorant to the evil that they cause. But they have so much money and they are always making mistakes um, that are to the benefit of themselves. And they have done this year upon year upon year upon year. And generally speaking, the marketing world is kind of OK with it because one, they sort of take care of us. 
Um, and I'm deliberately being vague about that, but there's a lot of people who do very well in the industry out of this. Clients do very, very well from the money that exists in that world. And they are able to justify everything with very hard metrics that look good on paper. So whatever claim it is that you're trying to make, there'll be someone within these big tech companies that can provide the data to show it. And broadly speaking, people are kind of complicit in it because it's much easier to go along with it than it is to disagree with it. To sort of fight and say their numbers are nonsense, to say that last, last click attribution is a waste of time, uh, to say that the amount of fraud in the industry is much greater than people say, um, to say that there's never been a single brand really built in a sustainable way only using digital media. There are all these things you could say, but most people most of the time look at that and they think, you know what, Like, I'd rather go on a yacht I can. Um, so I'm not saying the entire industry is a waste of time. I'm not saying the entire industry is evil, but I'm saying it's very difficult to start a conversation like that because you're basically going against lots and lots of data and lots of personalities and lots of misaligned incentives that mean it's probably not worth starting that conversation. You probably need to start sort of chipping away at it. Um, but part of the reason I get very vocal about a lot of this stuff in the industry is I'm surprised at how stupid we are as a whole. Like you can show research for an hour in a meeting to show that click-through rates mean nothing whatsoever. And after that hour, everyone will agree. And then the next person to enter that room will show off their campaign and the click-through rates. And everyone has completely forgotten the fact that for the last hour, you showed that to be nonsense. We are so much in love with things that are logical and easy to prove and not about persuasion, but about data. Um, that we have no way to sort of fight these battles unless we sort of succumb to that whole way of thinking. So I, I other than uh, hypothetically, you can have it as a sort of intelligent, thoughtful conversation. But I think in reality, it's quite hard to do that. Um, I haven't fully answered the question, but I said lots of stuff that was sort of vaguely helpful. <laughs> it's a really good question. Thanks, Paul. Next question. Good morning, Kurt Edwards. You, you've partly answered the question I'm going to ask anyway, but I'm asking it as a parent. I've got two teenagers and I see firsthand the harm that these social media and the world that these sort of kids are drawn into. And I'm, I see governments and I see media calling these companies out, but I don't see enough brands calling them out. And I think Lush a couple of years ago said, we're, not, we're gonna stop social media advertising because we just don't agree with what they're trying to do. Why do you feel that more brands are just not willing to put their hand up and say, look, we just don't wanna be in this space? I mean, you definitely are right. Um, and we certainly do not talk about this stuff enough. Um, I don't have kids, but I have two, um, a niece and a nephew, well, actually two nephews, um, and it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. I, I think because it's not a simple enough thing to, to get behind. You know, if, 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 a, if there's a sort of really horrible media channel, it's quite easy to rally around as brands and be part of a movement together. But I think the reality is that you know, social media, you could argue, includes YouTube. If you're talking about YouTube, then in, we're arguing about wonderful documentaries that people make about, you know, Bedouin tribes. Um, if we're saying that social media is bad, we're also saying that, you know, people that um, comment on each other's pictures on Instagram to say, you know, I miss you, babe. You know, you look amazing. We're saying that that's bad. So I think the problem is that... Everything in the modern age is so sort of multi-purpose and multifaceted that it's quite hard to find a particular way to slice through it and say it's bad. That's, that's, that's probably why brands don't want to do that, because these arguments either become too simple 
um, and then you miss the target or they become too complex and then everyone gets confused. Like I really can't stress enough the degree to which in the modern age everything has to be quite simple for people to understand. You know, genuinely, if you look at a phone, you know, it is a newspaper. You know, if your kids woke up every morning and they started reading, you know, the New York Times, you wouldn't sort of freak out. The, the phone is a phone. Like if your kids are texting their friends, then that's a bit like having a phone call with their friends. That's nice. Um, if your friends are playing computer games, a lot of computer games, kids play uh, as part of a community. Like it's like going around to each other's house and playing together, but they haven't left the house. But it, it's really hard because also the internet on a phone is, you know, giving them things to make them angry and um, misinforming them and, you know, making their brain chemistry go haywire. Like these things are just really complex. And if, if nothing else, I just wish that we could talk about these things a lot more and we could be much more open and honest about it. Kurt, thank you. Oh, three questions. So should we start here, here and here? Um, hi, John. Hi, Tom. Uh, I had a question on, I guess, what the biggest barrier is when you go into businesses to actually deliver on their digital transformation ambitions or what should they agree and stick to from the off for it to be successful? There are loads of barriers. Um, so I can almost go through them in, the, in, in order. Um, the first barrier is they don't want me in there because they don't really want to fix it. You know, the, the consulting business is based on not fixing problems. It's based on maintaining them for as long a period as possible um, under the illusion that they're fixing it. So people have hope that one day it'll be solved. So one is them actually wanting to hear from someone who might sort of tell them how it is. Uh, two is uh, these things are all said without any sense of like nastiness, by the way. It's just how I see things. Um, two is it requires an element of blame, probably. Like whenever we talk about something that wasn't perfect, people get very defensive. So you need to create an environment where it's very um, blameless, where you accept the reality of your situation. Thirdly is it's much harder to find capex than it is to find opex. Like railways are a very good analogy to this. You know, we've got something like the East Coast Main Line and the West Coast Main Line. Over about 25 years, we've spent more than three times the amount that it would have cost to build a brand new train line. But because building a brand new train line would have been uh, capex, it, it's very hard to make that case. So most sort of companies really exist on on maintenance. So finding the business case is very hard. It's also very hard to find a business case for something that doesn't really exist. You know, you, you can't really put into a spreadsheet the the benefit of creating something that people don't know to to exist. You know, a, a lot of the metrics you can't really measure. You know, if you say, um, you know, British Airways is a company that's universally hated, I think, in the UK these days. And I think most people would agree their customer service is absolutely atrocious. At the same time, EasyJet has an amazing app. Like, I absolutely love flying on EasyJet. The whole thing's beautiful. Um, also, our expectations are lower, which is a whole other thing. But it would be very hard to make the business case to BA that they need to change their systems. Like, I'm not, you know, you could sort of show, like, call center time being lower. You could show that you give refunds to people for their left, for their lost baggage more quickly. You know, you'd probably end up using, like, NPS or something, which I think is a complete waste of time. So you can basically not really make very good sort of mathematical, um, you can't really make mathematical sort of um, arguments for these things. And then the other thing is it's just quite hard and it takes quite a long time. And often if these things are important, they're actually too important for them to go down for a while while they're doing it. So you basically have to build something in parallel, then move across. So uh, I'm not sort of defeatist in any way, but it, it takes quite an unusual, brave company. Normally someone where there's a CEO at the top who wants to make a name for themselves. 
Um, so it's quite an unusual combination of things. And that's why if we look at all of the big companies in the world and we actually have to figure out which have digitally transformed, um, I don't think you could make an argument that there's a single one that has. You, you can show that they bought a unit, you know, HSBC doing First Direct. First Direct's still quite cool. But generally speaking, it doesn't happen. Thank you. Uh, I think we had a question here, didn't we? Hi both. Um, Sarah Stewart here. Um, I wondered, what do you think would need to happen within the marketing profession to have marketers as respected as accountants or legal? And should that happen? Um, yes. I'm going to be a little bit mischievous here, actually. Certainly within the advertising industry, which is not being a marketer, um, I am massively aware of how naive and ignorant we all are. Like the number of times I've worked on pitches where you know people have looked at the ads you know let's say you're pitching emirates uh, you'll have looked at the ads um maybe you've looked at their org chart maybe you've gone on sort of uh, glass door and read how people work there there won't be someone that's read the annual report there won't be someone that realizes that their entire business is really about the cost of oil there won't be someone that realizes that actually the really big things for an airline are about um, you know international trade agreements. They're about the five freedoms of flying. I, I say these things not because I'm an expert in the airline industry, but I'm aware there's loads of stuff that I don't know. And when I would sit in a meeting in an advertising agency on a pitch for Emirates, no one would have any interest in this stuff. Like no one would be figuring out, you know, what's what are interest rates going to do to the um, the cost of buying an A380. You know, what are the differences between a, a spug, spoken hub model and a point-to-point -point model? You know, everyone will be talking about the Hyperloop and people will be talking about flying cars. But no one will be talking about the, the, the real nuts and bolts of how to run a business. Now, marketers are far, far, far better at that than advertising agency people. But I think there are a lot of marketers over time that have sort of moved their shift away from people and being the voice of the people and they've moved their focus away from the operations of the company and they've become obsessed with the sort of marketing chatter so they'd be pretty good on you know d2c brands they'll be pretty good at um figuring out the metrics that matter they'll be pretty good at knowing conversion rates and ltv rates and they'll have listened to travis at uber and they'll have been to TechCrunch disrupt and they'll know about you know how airbnb moved their money to performance to brand but i think they've sort of lost sight of the idea that for me the role of the cma uh, cmo is to be the future of the business to understand the real business problems and to sort of approach business problems um, from the vantage point of a consumer and more general technology and i think this is obviously all hypothetical because i don't know many marketers so I'm not being critical, but I think the more that you can, the more that you'll get invited to the board when you have something worth saying in the board. Um, and a lot of agency people dream of the day they play golf with the CEO of their client. Um, they would embarrass themselves on the practice range. You know, they'd be saying, you know, what do you think of the Super Bowl ads? You know, the CEO is thinking, you know, fuck, you know, the trade show in next week and the, you know, the shake of Dubai. You know, they're not going to agree to the subsidy to build the power plant. That's what they're thinking about. They're not thinking about bloody ads. Just to add, I think the three things marketers don't do, they don't represent the consumer in the business yeah. well enough. I think they don't talk the language of business. They talk, yes. in, they talk this language that's like, 
where did you turn up? You know, yeah. like what? <laughs> and they don't address the core business problem. Like yeah. the amount of marketing conversations that goes, let me show you the packaging. Here's our new ad. And they just need to start us. The biggest business problem we've got is we need more people going in our stores, right? Yeah. How is that going to solve that? And it's just a simple little connect problem with solution that I think. I, I would say these do. whole things have been like a really big vicious circle where generally speaking, there's this sort of pointing of fingers where, you know, to make this language unfair but simplified, it's like marketers are behaving like kids and the board is the adults. And then the sort of board is looking at the the marketers being like, why are you behaving like kids? And then the kids are sort of acting out and not really acting like adults. And then everyone's sort of pointing each other and it's getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and and so the same thing has happened in agencies where agencies pitch relentlessly for business and they do exactly the same pitch. And then they always complain about the pitch process. But it's like actually the quality of work that I've seen in most pitches has been really low from every agency because they haven't had the time um, and they haven't used the right quality of people. And the reason they haven't used the right quality of people and had the right time is because they fired all the really good people because they were too expensive. And they did that because they kept on losing pitches and they kept on losing pitches because they didn't have the quality of thinking. And, and all of these things act as, as vicious circles. Um, and the beautiful thing about that is it's actually quite easy to turn it around. Just invest in some really good people, um, get people looking in the right place for answers. Um, and it would be amazing to see how quickly an agency or a marketer can start rising up to where they should be. Because I think everyone in this industry is amazing. And it requires agencies to think about more than the thing they're selling. Yeah, that's always the trick, isn't it? You know, you, you, you give a really complicated brief, you reveal the business problem and go and We'd like to show you our ad that starts on a beach in South Africa. <laughs> anyway, um, we had a question over here, didn't we? And please be thinking of really outrageous questions as well, or, or things that lead to a conversation that you want to have in the world. Sorry, Tom, this isn't that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did want to ask you, though, just to go back to I mean, the point that John picked up in the presentation around um, the marketing myth relating to the fact that you know we're not necessarily busy anymore, but we do get that sense of feeling overwhelmed. And I wonder if that's um, establishing maybe a new phenomenon, relatively new, where trust now has become a much more important characteristic mm. for people. Because when you're faced with that proliferation of choice, uh, whether that's from brands and retailers or even from a content perspective, and you need to kind of make decisions around what you're going to purchase and who from and where and how, trust then becomes this really important factor. Um, do you think that's a, a kind of accurate description I, no i think it's very accurate i think um like all these things there's there's quite a lot to discuss there really um like trust in the digital age is really interesting I, i'd be fascinated to know you know how many people actually use their neobanks you know for their real money um you know i think young people use them perhaps primarily um and that's because they don't really have much and then older people probably use them like a sort of digital piggy bank. And I think fundamentally, at our core, we need to sort of feel that if all of our money was lost, you know, we could go in and sort of murder someone that, that worked in the local branch. You know, we need to sort of feel that there's someone that's responsible for this stuff. We need to sort of feel that there's like a bank vault where our stuff is kept. And I think um, there are some really interesting discussions about trust in the digital age. I think a lot of it is, is more about safeguarding uh, regret and safeguarding the sense that we were stupid. Um, so it's quite easy to buy something from Shein, you know, or what's it called? Temu. You know, you sort of buy like uh, my niece is always buying absolute crap um, for like 99p. 
And then by the time you pay postage, it's like six quid and you get it. And you've basically been conned every single time. But because it was such a small amount of money and it's something that didn't matter, you're, you're, the fact that you don't trust them anymore isn't an issue. I don't think I can say many more smart things on this other than that it's a really interesting thing to discuss. Um, and I think more than anything else, it makes me come around again, and maybe I'm just being lazy, but it makes me come around again to all of the things that we knew to be true about marketing in the 1900s. You know, I, um, I travel a lot and I always stay in branded hotels. And that's quite unusual for me because normally I quite like sort of exploring. But I'm just like, I don't want to be in the sort of golden swan inn in Istanbul and not sleep before a presentation and just think, oh, you know, I should have stayed in the Holiday Inn Express because I knew that the bed, you know, was not going to smell like pee. And I, I think a lot of times in life, like almost all of the times in life, and this is all Rory Sutherland stuff, we're really looking at, for a shorthand to make sure that we didn't do something stupid. And then there are moments where we're happy to take a risk, where we like the feeling of being a little bit crazy, um, where we're expressing who we are by taking a risk. But, but more often than not, what we're really looking for is, um, is a sort of lightning rod for blame, I think. Um, and I think exploring that and how that's changing, I think, is a really interesting conversation. Your Uber example actually has got a little a good yeah. connection there because, you know, like you say, getting a stranger's car, but you have 5,000 rating, ratings of the driver at 4.9. You go, oh, OK, well, if all those other people felt safe, then I will. So yeah. you almost have to overcompensate in the digital age to create the trust that normally would be, oh, yeah. I, you know, I know Becky down the pub and other sort of thing. Yeah, You've yeah. got to try and find a way of getting... But it's kind of weird. I mean, you know, obviously most of the reviews on Amazon, I don't know what the numbers are, but if you ever go on Amazon, obviously they're all fake. Um, if you ever use Google Maps and look at the reviews there, they're either completely fake or they're from really weird people. But like somehow we're kind of okay with it. Again, like it's sort of plausible deniability. Like if you go to like a really bad kebab shop, but it was a 4.9, but you knew that all the ratings were fake, you'd still be like, well, I kind of tried. You know, like, I don't have time to like drag all the reviews. <laughs> it's when you discover that there are apps that do reviews for you. That you just uh, yeah. think, ah, oh, you're suddenly your eyes, you know, this is where it's bad being in, in marketing because you start to learn all this stuff and you go, oh, okay, see how that works. Maybe, maybe I'm just sort of being outlandish here just to get noticed a bit. But the, all of the numbers I see about fakeness in the industry and the amount of traffic that's fake and click farms and uh, fake clicks and fake followers, I think those numbers are way, way, way lower than reality. I mean, I think the, I can't remember the number, but the number of people on Instagram with more than 10 million followers is something absolutely absurd. Like there's, there's something like a like the hundred thousand people with 10 million followers. And you're like, you don't need to be like a rocket scientist to realize there's no way that's true. Um, I think a lot of these numbers are out by like a factor of 10. Reminds me back in the day of PR agencies that would go, your campaign's <laughs> been seen by 900 million people yeah. in the UK. <laughs> Um, should we go back here and I, then here I, and then here? I pre-agreed. Uh, so you've been fired six times. How many times was that because of a mistake you made? And what was it? And how many times was that because of a mistake they made? And what and what were they? I mean, all of the times it was a mistake I made in the sense that, like, I kind of was quite naive to how things really worked. I don't think I've ever made a big mistake when it comes to my performance. There were definitely jobs that I wasn't very good at. There were agencies that I wasn't very well suited towards. You know, I mean, definitely getting fired during COVID, but for my tweets, that was definitely a sort of mistake on my end for sort of misreading the room. There's a weird thing that happens when you're on the internet where you sort of forget that the real world exists. 
And it's only when you come to something like this that you're like, oh, yeah, you know, at the end of all these messages, there are like fingers and attached to those fingers, there are bodies. Uh, I, don't, I think every time an agency or a place has fired me, like they've probably made quite a good decision. Um, and I'm, I'm not being sort of rude for myself. I think there's a there's a sort of curve that happens in places where they're like, we need to change. Like, yes, we definitely need to change. We need to bring someone in to change us. Um, and then you go along through an interview process and you both sort of say what you feel um, and you're both being a little bit dishonest because you're trying to sort of impress each other and then they bring you in and they think they want it and then after a period of time, um, you realise that they don't really want it. And I think clients are quite similar as well. And that's life. I think um, I'm sort of more American now than I am British and I don't think American employment rules are great. But I also think there's a weird sort of meeting point between the two. I think um, I don't think we should live our jobs as if they're the most important thing. Um, but I also think it's perfectly OK for a company to tell you where to work and when to work. Um, I think it's perfectly fine for a company to fire you without a particularly good reason, um, because what that means is you can get hired extremely easily. And I actually think the whole marketplace for hiring and firing should be a bit more dynamic. I think people should be a bit more honest with each other about when people are not doing their job that well. Um, there's this weird thing where we're supposed to be like friends with everyone at work and we're supposed to like love each other. We're supposed to kind of like, you know, behave in ways which are not that sort of, um, which haven't really figured out yet. You know, like, is it is it sort of normal to expect to like everyone? No, you should respect people. You should enjoy working with them. But maybe you maybe you really like five people you work with and you think that five are a bit strange. That, that's OK, probably. That's a whole other thing I could talk about for a long time, so I won't. But Thank you. I think we had a question right at the back here, didn't we? Uh, unfortunately, it's a provocative one right at the end. So maybe it's for after. <laughs> I will pitch it provocatively. Um, totally agree with you about the nowism and also the business acumen pieces. I'm just thinking whether marketing and media have not actually created that through ageism. Because actually, if you've got timeline, you see all the things that you're talking about, the cycles, the new labels, um, the things that seem like change. So I'm at one end of the marketing spectrum, having spent several decades as a practitioner and now a very frustrated academic, teaching next gen. And they are really scared about their job and all these things that we're hearing about. And I'm there sort of saying, do you know what? It's been like this for ages. If we think about 80s, Thriving in Chaos was one of the biggest books of the 80s. And uh, we've got new tools, we've got new techniques. Don't stereotype the old people that they can't understand because we're just as futuristic looking, but we can actually say we've seen this before. The principles and the practice of marketing are enduring, but we've just got all these new ways of actually implementing things. So I'm just thinking if you look at marketing, you look at media, it's, it is in general sort of a young industry. And should we do more cross-talking across uh, the ages? I, I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, I remember starting a job in America uh, and I, it was the first digital agency I worked at. Um, I think I was only about 35 or something. And I just looked around the whole office and I thought, everyone's a kid. And that sounds quite sort of disparaging. But for me, it was really annoying because I had no one who I could learn different stuff from. Like, obviously, you learn tons from working around younger people. And obviously, younger people are brilliant. And we always need to be uh, putting each other in a position where we're learning as much as we can from each other. But I think we make very lazy 
sort of generalizations like we say that you know older people don't really understand technology older people don't really understand young people um older people are not very future focused like it's unbelievably untrue like i get my music recommendations from my dad my dad fixed my wi-fi the other day he's like 85 or something like my dad probably knows more about technology generally than me and just because he sort of learns things um, so this idea that sort of old people don't get it is nonsense. I think some of it is sort of uh, an undercurrent of ageism where there is a degree to which older people are not put in front of the clients. I think a lot of it is about the fact that um, we don't pay enough as an industry for old people to have the kind of lifestyles that they deserve. I think older people do choose to leave the industry to some extent because it's too frustrating for them to be around people who don't know what they're doing. So I, I think there should be like a really, really big conversation about one, this is a really fucking big problem because quite often we don't have adults who are taking part in these processes. Two, this is a really big problem because we all need to learn a lot more from each other. Three, it's not a, old people are good, that means young people are bad. It's everyone should be part of all of these conversations because it's better for everyone. But I think as part of that conversation, we have to have a really honest conversation about, you know, is it ageism or is it just people who are more discerning um, and are frustrated and are just tired of crap? Because <laughs> quite often I see, um, you know, people complain that, that they can't get a job. And I think, actually, I don't think they could get a job in some places because they would just leave because they, you know, you wouldn't want to work again on a weekend after a while because you're just like, I don't need to do this. Like uh, my, my, my sanity is more important than you know, saying that I had to contribute to slide three of a pitch that only got looked at for 10 seconds. But I know I keep on saying this and it sounds like I'm deflecting everything, but all of these things are things that we should really talk about. And we should talk about them face to face. We shouldn't be putting things on the record. We should really try to understand what's going on. I think a lot of it is just the, the vicious circle of us not adding enough value, so not getting enough money, so not paying people well enough, so not having the quality of talent generally. Like, it's that sort of thing. It, it's not that, you know, old people don't have the skills. That's nonsense. Hello. Um, first of all, thank you for being one of the people who is not afraid to have an opinion, um, who is bravely out there and vulnerably saying you might be wrong, but you don't seem to give a shit. My question is, is that because you don't have kids? Is that free you from the fear we all have and the mortgages of, uh, of being able to say what you want? Um, I think probably... No... I, I don't think I'm clever enough to think about the consequences. You know, you know, people that lie. Um, I'm like, wow, life would be quite easy if you could lie. Um, but that means you always have to remember the lies that you've said. <laughs> I don't like I, my girlfriend's quite often suspicious about things I've done. And I'm like, I don't have enough time and energy to do bad things and then cover up for them. So, no, I, I don't have the mental capacity nor the desire to think about all of the consequences of this stuff. I don't have very many fixed costs in my life. Um, I don't feel like I need to have a certain quality of life. Um, I might have kids quite soon. I, I, I'm not remotely interested in sending them to a nice school. Um, I went to a very normal, like comprehensive school where kids got beaten up all the time. And, you know, I wasn't being beaten up and I wasn't beating anyone up. So that was fine. Uh, we've got the internet now. That means we can learn anything. Um, I think I'm just quite ignorant and a bit weird. Like, I'm not trained to be fearful of all these things. 
you know, realistically, every single person in this room, like, we probably don't have that much to be scared by. Like, we probably think we do because, you know, it'd be nice if we got upgraded to premium economy and it'd be sort of weird if, like, you know, the shoes aren't a little bit cool. Like, we're, we're scared about all the wrong things. Um, so I just realized that it was the only way I knew how to be. Um, and then you get this weird thing where it seems to sort of work out quite well. But I'm always aware that pretty much, you know, 99.9% .9 of what I'm saying is not really that um, amazing. I'm just saying what everyone's thinking. I'm just the one person that's saying it often. Thank you for saying it. The second part of my question is, do you know any way of getting a room full of, you know, really bright marketeers to maybe sing something or celebrate something today? I think when we were talking about old people, um, it made me realise that we do have someone that's very old in this room. Um, and he's a little bit older today than he was yesterday. Um, so this entire, thing, qualifying for your this entire thing is not undercover CMO with Tom Goodwin. This entire thing is John's birthday. Oh. <laughs> so after, <laughs> happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear John. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> and I'm a legit massive fan of Colin as well. <laughs> On characters. Are we allowed, we're allowed to, sort of be early, we? Are allowed to be upstairs and oh, eat yeah. the cake together or something? Oh. Yay. Thank you. Yay. <laughs> You know, you know how in the pandemic, like when you hadn't seen people for about three years, some people look like they'd aged 10 years and some people look like they'd be two years younger than the start. There's a very weird thing with aging, I think, these days where, you know, this notion of like old people is completely crazy. Like the number of like 85 year olds that run a faster marathon than any of us, like the number of 85 year olds that are better at their job than they've ever been before. Like there are a lot of weird things about life where you know, the kind of the patterns of life that we established in the 1800s and the 1900s. There are a lot of assumptions about life. You know, you should retire. Like the notion of retirement is based on the idea that our bodies wear out because we've been doing manual labor. Um, it's completely bananas to me that just as people get to the best they've ever been at their job, they then retire. That doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know why I'm still talking, but my, my point <laughs> is, uh, John, you look very, very young. Oh, thanks, mate. <laughs> It's the moisturiser. I'm reading this book actually called Middle Aged Cyclist, right? This is this is like properly old man thing, right? But but it's in, the intro is quite interesting because it talks about like exercising through middle into old age yeah. is not something that's ever happened in history. No. And so all the science going on about how you maintain performance of your body and you look at like the sorry getting really geeky now but you look at like the cycling records for different distances by age category and it, it and the times are really similar. Like, if anything, it kind of like, by 40 is about the peak performance of cyclists. It's crazy. But if you take a 75-year-old, they'll be within, like, 2 or 3% of a 40-year-old. Of a it's just uh, insane. I, anyway. This is probably the answer to one of your questions before that I didn't do very well. But, yeah, like, um, the fact that people's age is, is sort of unbundled from their physicality and is now more about a mindset and, um, like, habits is it's crazy. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to do a deck once, which is all the trends for marketing that we're not really talking about. And, and it, it would be stuff like this, you know, the, the gap between rural and urban areas, um, you know, the growth of like India and how it will probably sort of take over the world. Um, the fact that everyone's now looking at China, not America, the fact that old people aren't old anymore. Um, the fact that you don't really need an education apart from, you know, because it's how you sort of um, 
defensively answer questions at dinner parties. These are all things that I think we should talk about more in marketing. So talking of attribution, I think my cinema budget is uh, <laughs> about to cross my Starbucks budget. So I think Starbucks might be the next plan. That's good. <laughs> so, Thank you very much. Which you're very welcome to us. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Uncensored CMO. It's a real pleasure having you join me. Um, if you'd like to never miss an episode again, please do hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcast. Or if you're watching on YouTube, please hit subscribe there. If you want to contact me, I'm over at Twitter at Uncensored CMO or on LinkedIn at John Evans. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you next time.